This podcast is brought to you by the Trinity Whip Company. Battling daily whip fever? Sadly, there is no cure, only treatment. More whips. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Burning. TrinityWhipCo.com Or look for the link on our main page. TheFedoraChronicles.com This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. This is episode 57 of the Metaphysical Connection, with special guest star Walter Bosley on the topic of ancient breakaway societies. I'm your host, Carol Fisk. This time, Walt Schnabel and my husband, Eric, talked to one of the world's leading authorities on the topic of breakaway societies, Walter Bosley. These three gentlemen talk about controversial topics from hidden bases on Antarctica, evidence of lost civilizations in South America, and advanced flying technology that allegedly existed way before their time. They also talk about NIMSA, the Fourth Reich, and fighting the existing paradigm that excludes evidence that proves history is far more complex than we originally thought. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So, uh, Walter, really um, glad that you could join us today. Um, uh, we're, we're honored to have you. We, we, um, you know, we, we've been hoping to to get you as a guest. I, I saw your appearance on um, Sean Stone's show, Buzzsaw. Oh yes, okay. yeah, that was really good, and, and it really kind of turned me on to what you're doing and what your what your research is about and those those kinds of things. And as I was watching it, it occurred to me that. Um, this this topic of, of breakaway civilizations is is huge. I mean, it's it's a really important topic. Um, but before we get too far into that, let's can can you give us um, Eric? Do you want to do a little introduction, or you want to just let him do his thing, or how do you want to how do you want to roll with that? I, I, I wanted to do it the way we always do it. We okay, just, go ahead, go what, for it. What we do is we just fire up the microphone and we just we just start it and we just run it. We may we may not be the best paranormal. Um, great uh, podcast in all of New England, but I guarantee you we are the funniest. <laughs> so we try hard. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the humor is not intentional. So, but this, but I, everybody, everybody who is into the paranormal, everybody who is into the topic of unexplained phenomenon, um, UFOs, flying saucers. Um, ancient alien civilizations. Everybody knows the name Walter Bosley. Oh wow! And uh, and um, it's funny how many times um, in doing research for this particular show, how many names your name comes up in other people's books. Really? This is this is so. This is the guy. We, every time we talk about weird artifacts that are hiding. Uh, you know, in Antarctica or elsewhere under the, under the ground, your name always comes up. And Walt had said, "What are the chances of us getting Walter Bosley on the show?" And all you have to do is ask. <laughs> all you have to do is ask. So, so Walt reached out to you, and so and here we are, and we are incredibly grateful. And and instead of asking each other, well, what do you think? What do you think, Mister Bosley would say? Now we get to ask you. So the, the hard the hardest thing is is trying to narrow down what we want to talk about because you have you have such a varied um, amount of research as going through your material 
Um, there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about. It you know we could we could be on here for hours, but I know you have a limited time frame, so we kind of narrowed it down to um, to talking about your new work, and then and then maybe talk about breakaway civilizations a little bit. Um, okay. But before we get rolling, can you can I mean can you give us a little bit of your your bio about sort of I, I know your your dad was involved in in um, he, he was involved with Roswell somehow I believe. And he was in the military, he was in the Air Force, I guess. And so yes, can you, he was he was, according to him, he was briefed on Roswell. Oh, he was. Um, okay. He, excuse me. He went into the Air Force in nineteen fifty-five. And uh, because of the events I write about um, in Shimmering Light, my most recent book, he was briefed in on Roswell because a very similar thing had happened again in the late fifties. And um, you know, I grew up hearing for years, even before the, you know, the famous book by um, Moran Berlitz came out in 1980. You know, I'd heard about this strange thing that had happened at Roswell. But uh, yeah, I I recount all of that, everything he told me, plus as much research as I could do um, in that book, Shimmering Light, which I'm sure we'll get into and discuss more here today. I, I think that the one of the things that many of us in the paranormal have in common, many of us, not most, but maybe man, because um, my father was he was uh, ASA Army Security Agency ah, uh, yes, okay. during the Korean War. And I would almost say that because of a lot of the secrets that he had kept, I think that's part of the reasons why he had a quasi breakdown, because he just couldn't tell anybody about what he saw. And when he eventually broke down and he said that there was all sorts of like weird surveillance things that he was a part of and things that um, that he that he had seen and why. I mean, even way back in the 19, you know, 1974, when I was about maybe five years old, he had made it perfectly clear. There are weirder and stranger things out there than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And and what was what was the relationship that you had with your dad? So, same thing. I, you know, I was real close to my dad. Um, uh, you know, he was interested in this weird stuff. So naturally, that's how I and my sisters got exposed to it initially, and it just really clicked with me. So I would talk with him a lot about, you know, these things in general, and he had, you know, told me about this story um, about his experience in the Air Force with being briefed on Roswell. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm. I got a little hay fever thing going here. I apologize. Oh, we all have um, it. We all have it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it fascinated me, you know, because like you just said, you know, you're a kid and you're hearing this story of strange things from, you know, other worlds and, uh, you know, people who um, inhabit the planet that we don't know about, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's very, um, very intriguing. And, it's, you know, as you know, if you're the kind of kid that, finds those things interesting you just eat it up with a spoon you know and um, what I discovered was the more I dug into it the you know the more I was convinced that my dad was telling me the truth as you know as he knew it um, now, now of course in the book I go into the possibilities that it was an implanted story but you know I conclude with um, you know there are reasons to for, for me to accept the story he gave basically face value. Um, so it, uh, you know, and that comes from 
years and years of hearing the same story consistently and knowing my dad, <coughs> he was not the kind of guy to make things up. And, um, you, you know, I, w- I would see his vehement response when people would, for example, bring gray aliens into it. He swore from the beginning and as the years progressed and, and that legend got attached to Roswell, he would insist they were not gray aliens, that they were they were humans, just a little different from us in, the, in their, their body hair, really. They had little to no body hair. Um, and again, I get into that in the book, you know, in further detail. But I always, you know, I always found it interesting, you know, that knowing him, um, to be an honest man, um, you know, that he stuck with this and, and it stayed consistent. Um, so, you know, so what, what, what do you do with that? You know, you dig into it and you see if you can corroborate it at all. So, so um, based on, on what you learned from him, you, you were thinking that the um, people that, that were in that craft that crashed at Roswell were part of an alternative civilization or well, that's they, what, is, is that what kind of what you were getting to with that or? Well, that, that's what he said that he was flat out told when he was briefed on Roswell, he was told at Wright-Patterson, that this was a civilization that coexists with ours on this planet and that they're subterranean huh. and that their ship had crashed. And that's that's what Roswell was. That's what he swears he was told. And then he was told that the reason they were being briefed on that was because it had happened again in Arizona. And then he was sent out to Arizona to be uh, part of the rescue operation because he was told that the pilot of the lost craft from the other civilization was still alive and just lost up on the surface. And for whatever reason, however they did it, they had come to U.S. authorities for assistance in finding this individual. And they had made it clear that they really didn't want to have much, if anything else, to do with us up on the surface. They just wanted to bring their guy home and, you know, uh, they needed help. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure you could read in maybe, you know, other possibilities of, you know, maybe the, it was an intro, um, a way to open the door and break the ice on some type of um, diplomatic relations, if you will. But uh, what he was told was just what I said, that um, they they just needed help getting their guy back home and that they were definitely human beings that had gone underground many, many um, thousands of years several thousand years prior to this would have been 1958. But uh, he was vehement about that, that these were human beings. These were not hmm. extraterrestrials. So so obviously they have a much older technology than we have. They have a much more advanced technology than we have, mm-hmm. you would say? Yes. So yeah, that was his, that's what he was told. That was his understanding based on his experience that he related to me. And that's my understanding, yes. So, so basically, there was no contact between that civilization and some faction of the government, or so they, they were totally separate and disconnected from from the human race. Right, as we that's know it. my understanding. No <clears throat> official contact, but you know, as you dig deeper into it, which right. when I did, um, you find that, of course, historically there may have been. Because I propose who I think it might have been as just a possibility to consider, <clears throat> based upon. My dad's experience and other um, contactee reports. Um, and so there might have certainly have been 
uh, instances of contact, but apparently nothing official, according to my dad. Mm -hmm. So we are just dealing with two parallel civilizations that are living at the same place at the same time, but on different layers of the planet, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So what drove them underground um, for, for those of us who haven't read your book yet? Um, according to the briefing my dad received, a cataclysm on the surface of the Earth. Um, now, that could have been the, uh, the, the global flood, of course, that we hear about that's tied in with the destruction of Atlantis and Lemuria and all that. Um, it could have been some type of impact uh, event. Um, but it was some type of cataclysmic event that happened on the surface. And apparently it drove all the survivors underground for a while. Some returned to the surface, others stayed below. Which, which I, know, it, I know the, uh, the Hopi Indian, the Native Americans talk about going underground and for, mm -hmm. for a period of time, I think for the right. same reason, and then resurfacing at some point. Um, so it could have been the same same scenario, maybe. I right, mean. exactly. And, and the Paiutes talk about, you know, the, the, the Havmasuvs who had this advanced civilization with their flying canoes and such that, um, you know, that there was once a sea where Death Valley is. Mm -hmm. and, and they had this um, technology that's almost virtually the same thing as what my dad um, experienced in the underground world. And, and I go into that in the book because it's very intriguing that this existed in um, – this native lore, and then based on what my dad experienced, and based on a uh, a report that Jacques Vallée writes about in one of his books that happened um, in the '60s, a few years after my dad's experience, where you know some very similar technology um, is wielded, and so you know when you have the Hopi legends and you got the Paiute legends, and they connect this technology and these people with the the time of the cataclysm. That drove everybody underground. You know, you you begin to, you know, pile up the um, evidence, so to speak, um, that makes my dad's story a little bit more intriguing than just you know another experience or tale. I think that one of the things that I find really amazing and 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 evidence for this, as it were, is the mm -hmm. entire concept of outer out of place artifacts, such as there mm -hmm. are things that people find. Well, either they're excavating or they're digging in cold mines. And we find, we, we meaning our civilization who was living on this, right. this surface, we find things like um, axes and axe handles and bells that are yeah. like hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years old. And there's no scientific explanation other right. than the fact that there was another advanced civilization here on Earth. Well, in some cases, we have things that look like spark plugs, you know, that have been mm -hmm. embedded in rock for thousands of years. And, of course, there is the, the and let me make sure I pronounce it right, the the Arachithra device, the, you know, that thing. Yes. Of, it's like a computer. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's sort like, of like the, a the astronomy clock. Mechanical computer to... Right, yeah. yeah. And it brings to mind, since um, I'm, now you guys have said you read the Burton book, right? No, my book on Burton. No, I've se I've seen it and yeah. I'm very interested in it, but I haven't read it yet. In, in that book, I discuss what's known as the Liahona. The Liahona was a device um, uh, discussed in the Book of Mormon, 
um, I'm I'm not a member of the Mormon Church. I'm not a Mormon myself. Um, I just think that some of the Joseph Smith, I think, somehow gained access to some actual ancient records. And I think what he did, of course, was was um, you know he included it in when he developed his his church. Um, but I think there's something to the ancient history when they talk about that in the Book of Mormon. And one of the things they discuss, and I get into this in my Burton book, is this device called the Liahona device. It was a, a metal ball that um, would work as a navigation, kind of like a GPS. It would tell them which direction to go. This is when they were crossing the sea. It would tell them which direction to go, and the words would appear on the surface of the ball. And it's this amazing device. And, you know, from our 21st century perspective, you know, that sounds for all the world like, you know, some type of digital GPS type of thing, you know, that we would be used to. But this was thousands of years ago. Like a Garmin. Like a Garmin. The the Antikythera device um, seems very similar to this Liahona thing that is talked about. So. And you can't, you cannot deny the existence of these devices and you cannot deny the fact that they are as old as they seem to be, because if you believe in carbon dating and if you can, if you can use carbon dating to figure out how old caveman drawings or, or campfires or tools are, and if it's accurate for that, then it's accurate for everything else. And these strange things that we keep finding you can uh-huh. only you can only come to the conclusion that there was somebody here living on the surface of the earth hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years before there was any supposed to be anybody here and the right. civilization is far more advanced than we could possibly imagine they were probably comparable or more advanced than we are now oh sure yeah i think so uh, Walter, so. getting back to Burton, I, he, he seemed like a very intriguing character. Can you give us a little more information about him? I, I'd like to oh. um, actually get that book and read it. I just haven't got it yet. But um, he, he seems like he was on to something um, back in, when was he, in the late 1800s? Is that what his time frame was? Or Yeah, the, the, the mid to late 1800s, mid to late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And indeed... He's one of the most interesting characters in history. Um, he's been kind of one of my on my hero list for for several years. Um, he was, in a nutshell, the classical philosopher scientist who was able to hold his own and gain reputation in an era when the when the materialist bean counting scientist types had ascended you know, um, to their position that they still hold today. Right. Um, mm-hmm. it, in, in the Royal society, the, the, the materialist reductionist bean counter guys, they couldn't stand the philosopher scientists. They just couldn't stand them. And so they finally came to outnumber them in the Royal society. And I think it was 1840, um, that they essentially took over, the, the, the Royal Society, and then, of course, this went into the Royal Geographic Society and the Royal Astronomical and all that. And 
philosopher scientists, you know, the guys who were brilliant scientists, material scientists, but they were also alchemists and, and they also understood the occult and the arcane things. They were outnumbered and they were pushed aside so that we could have, you know, basically the, the uh, ultimately, you know, who would be the Darwinian, you know, um, atheistic materialist guys. And Burton was such a good researcher and provided things in such detail. Uh, basically, he was a philosopher scientist who could uh, beat the materialists at their own game. And, you know, you'd have materialist scientists that would say, oh, hogwash, Walter, you're full of crap. Burton was, he was one of us. Well, that's nonsense. You read about the man and you realize that he was definitely a philosopher scientist. And I, and I go into that in the book because he was raised by a father who was practicing alchemy. And this, his father and mother took he and his brothers and sisters um, all around Europe and to places where, and I go into this in the, the Burton book, where there was a known history with occult science, occult sciences, you know, alchemy um, and, and various other things. And so this guy grew up around this, okay? And by the time he got to Oxford, I'm convinced that he was recruited while at Oxford to go into British intelligence. Um, he did not finish at Oxford, actually. The story goes that he was, you know, not happy there. He was a ne'er-do-well, and, and he uh, ended up joining the East India Company to go off on adventures before he actually finished, and he, he technically, you know, washed out. When you look closely at the details, you see that um, his associates, while at Oxford, they were likely British intelligence, and he was, he was most likely, in my opinion, recruited while there. And then when you look at his career after that, you see that his, his – and he was known to be an intelligence officer, of course. He was um, an undercover agent extraordinaire. He was the guy – I think one of two guys. Um, you know, He went on the pilgrimage on the Hajj to Mecca, okay, undercover as an Arab Muslim. And lived to tell about it. He got into the Kaaba. He was the guy that came back and said, wow, their big secret in the Kaaba is that it's just a friggin, it's a, it's a meteorite. That's all it is. You know, okay. this big mysterious rock that they've got in the big square thing, you know, they march around and they, they revere. You know, he came back and wrote about it and said, yeah, it's just a piece of meteorite. It's nothing special. Which I'm sure won him uh, lots of friends in the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> in the Muslim world. Yeah. Least. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this is how good this guy was at this. Now, um, I say that, you know, we, of course, have never heard all the exploits of Burton in spite of how much he wrote. Because I would, you know, I say a lot of it, you know, or a good portion of it remains classified. Especially what my book is about. And that's his missing months in South America. Um this was the kind of guy, Burton was the kind of guy that when you think of South America and all the kinds of things that we're talking about here today and guys like us are interested in, the lost civilizations, you know, he was interested in this stuff all his life. And, you know, you put him in that place in South America, you let him loose in the wilderness and he's missing. Richard Burton wrote about everything he did. You should read his book about you know, going back to the Mormons about his time in Salt Lake City, okay? I slogged through that book. That has to be one of the most excruciatingly boring books you'll have ever encountered <laughs> oh, in your no. life. <laughs> and I read every word of it, okay, because there's some very important info in it regarding what I think he was doing. Anyway, this guy wrote 
about every little thing he did, anthropologically and such, all his travels, except he didn't write a word, not a single word is out there publicly that we're aware of, about his missing months in South America. And I just found that so intriguing. And, you know, he was already a hero to begin with. And then, you know, when I came across this and really dug into it, you know, he just went higher up the ladder, <laughs> you know, for me. But he was he was a, um, you know, he was he was, uh, you know, you think of think of uh, Han Solo, think of Captain Kirk, think of, you know, James Bond. He, he was all of these Um and, I was thinking Indiana Jones. Sounds he sounds like Indiana that kind of Jones, a character. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Indiana Jones too. I mean, he he was he was all of these, and um, I argue um, that he had been not only recruited by British intelligence, but I believe he was working for a secret group dedicated to um, finding the the lost technology of the forgotten civilization. I, I think that that's who ultimately he was really working for, and um, it's all there. When you really study the man, you see his interests and his influences and what he was exposed to all his life and then what he did in his career. It, to me, it's clear. He was, he was on to something um, that, was, that remains mysterious to this day. I think his report on the missing expedition remains classified to this day, and, and think about that. That was in the 1860s, and, you know— we're going to be uh, in a couple of decades or so here. It's going to be almost 200 years. You know, it's been about 170 years or whatever. Um, and it remains classified, in my opinion. And, as I say in the book, I think it has everything to do with the disappearance of Colonel Percy Fawcett. Before you get on to um, Colonel Fawcett there, the thing that I keep saying, and I think that it's it's the running theme of the metaphysical connection, is that there is an establishment that is trying to keep a specific paradigm perpetuating. And any, sure. anything that steps outside of the established norm, not 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 reality, but the the established norm, they do a they do a great job stifling any new information about anything that disturbs that paradigm. what what do you, what do you think of that? Oh, I, I think you're right. Of course. Um, now, I, I've gotten into a little bit more of an attempt to flesh out who I think that is. And at present, I think what you're talking about has a lot to do, if not everything to do, with these breakaway civilizations. Now, I, of course, propose that there are two that we're dealing with in our times and have been dealing with for the last over 100 years. And one of them is very much interested in doing what you just described. They're very much interested in controlling the paradigm and the perception of the masses as to what human history is. And there are certain things about human history they do not want known because it would threaten their power and authority. And I think that there is another breakaway that is at least of equal power to them. And I mean, I, I include forceful power, um, uh, military force if necessary. And this is why the, you know, the group like what you just described and what we're talking about here, this is why they don't just openly rule like totalitarians. If they did not have an opposing faction that could equal or best them, they would just be more open in my opinion. And we would just be openly slaves instead of, you know, being spoon fed that, you know, we're freer than, or we're less free than we think we are, that kind of thing. 
Um, yeah, definitely. And this group that has an interest in controlling the masses of the, the, the earth, um, it's in their interests to have us believe in this linear, you know, we started out as, you know, an amoeba and then a crawling lizard and then, you know, ape men, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> the Darwinian materialist theory, it's in their interest to, you know, to have us reject the idea that there was an advanced civilization on this planet in the past. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with you on that. Is, is one of those civilizations um, an offshoot of, of what you've talked about, the Nimza? Um, and, and maybe you might want to talk about them a little bit if, if that's sure. the case. Or uh, I, I find yeah. that very intriguing. I think that's a real um, important thread that runs through all this stuff, who the, who the Nimza were and what their, what their intention was. And, and is the Nimza part, part of one of those breakaway civilizations or, or not? Oh, absolutely. The, the, the faction I'm talking about that has an interest in controlling things and, and keeping certain information away from us, in my opinion, is the Nimza. Okay, that's kind of um, what I was and, Yeah, and then the, the opposing faction is who I call the 1903, and uh, that's related to um, when, uh, you know, I pretty much uh, guesstimate, theorize that they, they broke away from what I think or what I suggest, what I propose – based on the circumstances and what little scant evidence we have, they broke away from what might have been America's first black project, um, secret technology project. And I propose that they broke away in 1903 and that they equal the power of the NIMSA. Now, the, the NIMSA, uh, they were uh, a Prussian organization before Germany unified. And they're, you know, of course, then continued on once the unification of Germany happened. Right, right. And they, their influence led to the foundation of the Nazi Party. Okay. And then, of course, by the end of World War II, when you talk about the military industrial complex of today, the one that uh, President Eisenhower warned about, right. you are talking about the Nazi international, as Joseph Farrell puts it, the Nazi international um, structure that uh, came uh, here via Operation Paperclip. Right. Okay. And this was, you know, you go from the NIMSA, who, um, uh, you know, uh, inf influenced the creation of the Nazi party. And then, of course, the, the Nazi international, that's the surviving Nazis after the war, because Germany was defeated, not the Nazis. Yes. And they built this military-industrial complex, and they're the ones, it, the Nazi international, not the U.S. government, the Nazi international who's infiltrated the, these, you know, entities in the, the complex that we're talking about. Um, they're the ones that have a stake in all this control of knowledge and information that we're talking about. Um, and interestingly enough, too, they they have a hand in, um, you know, your your Marxist power centers. You know, anything that is a, a collective political philosophy, be it communism, be it fascism, this all, in my opinion, falls under NIMSA because these came out of the NIMSA influence. Okay, and um, it serves. Um, you know, we know that Germany and Russia were at each other's throats during World War II, but, you know, their philosophies serve the same end, and that's a totalitarian rule of the earth and its people. 
So what we're sort of witnessing right now is sort of like there's a there's a, a, a flip side of the, of the globalist coin that is essentially what many people call the Fourth Reich is mm -hmm. the like um, everybody who came into power via um, Operation Paperclip here in the United States has mm -hmm. has something to do with that. Do you think that they're also involved in um, other other churches or like uh, like the reason why all these religions just keep fighting against each other. Do you think they have something to, to do with that to keep, to oh, sort of keep yes. us at our, at each other's throats? Oh, uh, the terrorist problem we have today, the, the uh, Islamic jihadist, you know, um, Islamist fanatics, they are a direct product of, of, you know, the, the 20th century German influence going back to, before World War One, you had a, a character named von Oppenheim, and um, he was working for Kaiser Wilhelm, and he was the one who first got the idea to use the concept of jihad against Germany's enemies at that time, or perceived enemies, okay? Now, by the time World War II comes along, Otto Skorzeny, he sees this as also useful, so the Nazis really fired up the uh, jihadis in the Middle East because they, they wanted them to start, you know, causing trouble for England and anyone else that the uh, that Nazi Germany was fighting. And even though the war ended, uh, you know, this kept going on. Um, we're having trouble with these jihadi fanatics today because, you know, evidence suggests that the current Nazi international um, continues to fuel this fire because it's keeping everybody distracted. I mean, look what it's doing to the world. You've, you've got these invasions, immigrant invasions going on throughout Europe. Um, it, that is a tactic. And then you have, um, I think it's called Takifa or Tafik or whatever, and that's where in Islam it's perfectly okay to lie to non-Muslims um, and tell them, oh, no, we don't believe in jihad. Oh, no, we don't, we don't side with that. Oh, no, that's not part of Islam. That is an actual identified tactic of um, uh, proliferation of their particular religion to ultimately have Sharia law supplant. And I'm not trying to get political here, but, you know, we're, this is part of the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what this is, is the Nazi international knows this and they're using this to cause the dissension and to break down the western nations okay um they're they're using these fanatical muslims and this sharia law um concept as a means to you know uh, uh create cracks in our infrastructure okay and on on the socialist side of it because the nazi international they're the fascist side of it on the socialist side of it They've been using influence agents to break us down and, you know, don't call something as you see it. You got to be nice. You got to be understanding. In other words, stand there Political and let something beat the hell out of you and just keep accepting it because you got to show you're the bigger person. Well, this is a tactic. Mm -hmm. This is a tactic that, you know, they use and uh, it, it's succeeding. But all this to say, yes, there's a hand behind this and it's the Nazi international. And unfortunately, um, uh, for, I you know Islam, um, I think their goal is to ultimately see Islam itself destroyed. Um, 
this is what I get from you know d discussing the concept with some other scholars who know more about it you know than I do. Um, they they certainly they just they're just using this um, so, to so, keep everybody on edge and frightened and such. Sorry, so it's kind of like a shell game. They're 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 yes. showing one thing over here, but actually they're doing something else. And it, yeah, and, the, and that doesn't mean that you know, well, the best thing to do then is just to not play along because these fanatics that they're using, if you don't, you know, if, if you don't stand up to them right. and stop them, th their path of destruction will continue. And then the, we talk about a dark place. We'll be back in a dark age as the likes of which, you know, nobody alive has right. ever seen. Right. Right. I think so. The, 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 the Nazi, uh, I'm going to call it the Fourth Reich, I guess. Um, is is basically waging a financial war. I think. I mean, it's not it's not actually necessarily military, but now right. they're they're trying to dominate financially with all the leftover sure. goods and think uh, treasure that they had after after World War II. I guess a lot of that stuff went to South America. Um, <clears throat> what what is it about South America? I know you, when you're talking about Burton, he was down there. Uh, was he in Argentina or or what? Or is there any he, knowledge he was, about actually he was where in he Brazil. was? He was in Brazil. Okay. He, he was in Brazil. He went there as a consulary official mm -hmm. and he served as a consulary official for uh, like three years. And then as he was finishing his assignment, he um, went off and disappeared into the Brazilian wilderness for, um, he was off duty for six months after finishing his consular work. Mm -hmm. And for specifically about four months of those six months, Nobody knows where exactly he was. He told, if you look at his letters, there's this half-assed story that just really doesn't add up, and you can tell that he it was just something he would tell at parties. Um, it's still um, really lacking in detail and, and doesn't really make sense. So basically, there was a period of about four and a half months where he completely disappeared, and we don't really know what he was doing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the thing about South America... And I've, I've come to, uh, presently, I'm convinced of this, I, I think what we're finding in South America, you know, they like to say that civilization began over in the Fertile Crescent in Sumeria mm -hmm. and such, and I think what we're finding is um, the theory that civilization may have actually begun in this hemisphere might actually be the truth, and that's what they want to hide. Um, because when you think that... You know, there's all sorts of evidence now, the portalons and the maps, you, you know, pretty much Columbus, going to Columbus. When he was coming over here in 1492, you know, the evidence is that he knew what he was going to find. He already knew what was here. He may have been here already. And, you know, we can point to the, the you know, the possibility that the Templars had gained information of the Americas and knew what was over here, you know, across the oceans from Europe and, and going back even to King Solomon, that maybe his mines were over here in the Americas. And then just everybody that knew this kind of kept it a secret. And, you know, part of that was because they got over here and they found these lost cities and, you know, what appeared to be, you know, this, this technology that of course was way beyond the medieval and the, the pre-medieval technology of um, known history. And I think that's what it is about South America. I think the secrets of um, human existence, of, of human civilization, um, are still there. And, you know, the people that don't want that known, you know, they have a stake in just keeping it buried in the jungle. 
But I think that's what's going. I think that's what it is about South America. Do you think that's connected to Lemuria, or um, is that like another? Is that another whole or moon concept or moon? Oh, he, yeah. he, my view, I'm I'm of the school of thought that we have the a legend of Atlantis, we have a legend of Lemuria. Okay, mm-hmm. I think there's a nugget of truth in those legends. All right, um, when you when you look at all the legends of Lemuria, you got to kind of sift through there and take those certain denominators there. You know, after you sift through it and say, okay, there probably was you know this civilization that you know, expanded across the Pacific and it had an advanced technology and such. And, and then on, you know, the other hand, there was probably this, this Atlantean civilization. Some argue that they were basically one and the same and they were the first global, mm-hmm. you know, because right. of their technology mm-hmm. and knowledge that they were the first global civilization. But then you look at, you know, some works like the, the ancient, you know, um, uh, Indian, East Indian scriptures and stories where there were these two civilizations at war with each other, and that can fit the Atlantean and Lemurian models. So I look at Atlantis and Lemuria as models for something that was there. Mm-hmm. Now, how advanced they were, you know, that the degrees vary, but I think the basics, I think the basics were there. Yeah. I think so many people look at the Mahabharata. Um, yes. If I pronounced it right. Um, Mahabharata. Okay. And, uh, you, and you look at that and it was just like if you, if you strip away the fantasy um, um, token aspect of it and you look at it from a scientific sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson sort of um, academic way of looking at it, it, it's, it describes nuclear war right down to the to the the uh, iron thrown from the sky to the ground with the power of the universe and and causing what is essentially what we did to hiroshima and nagasaki with you know a flash of light and a tower of smoke and 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 soldiers running to the ocean trying to decontaminate themselves and the hair and the fingernails falling apart falling out that's an atomic war oh absolutely yeah so yeah. if there, so if there was an atomic war millennia ago, then it stands to reason that there was an advanced civilization comparable to ours at that same period, which right. which explains all these strange things that we that excavators and miners keep finding. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. It 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 makes sense, <clears throat> and um, you know the more this stuff turns up, and the more we you know, go digging around, um, I think, in the jungles of South America and, and other places, the more we're going to find these things. And the picture is going to become so clear that eventually the people trying to suppress it aren't going to be able to suppress it anymore. And, and I think they know that. I think it's just a matter of time before, you know, the masses learn the truth. And so they're just doing what they can to jockey for position so that they, they, they want to maintain their position of control. And, and this is tied in with disclosure of, you know, people mm-hmm. off planet is I, they know, in my opinion, they know that's an inevitable um, because all it's going to take is, you know, one of those civilizations to just come here and say, you know, screw you secretive guys. We're here and make themselves known and i think they know that that's inevitable and so that's why they play the games with that in in position on the one hand yeah they they're the ones who decided and we're talking nims of course and all their relative associates you know they're the ones who kind of 
have their hands in controlling things here, and um, there's a downside to it. Um, but then on the other hand, they know that their time is limited in that capacity. So, you know, just keep it down as long as they can and, um, you know, see what happens when it comes out. Walter, do you, do you think there's a reason why the Nazis went to Argentina or at least parts of South America anyway? Is, I mean, is that connected somehow, do you think? Were they... Were there were there bases set up there, or some? There must have been some reason for it. I don't, they didn't do too many things just by happenstance. Oh no, not at all. Um, they, uh, you know, we're, again going back to Nimza, Nimza tied in with this, you know, the airship uh, milieu. Uh, you know, I talk about in my book Origin um, and uh, Empire of the Will, two friends from Sonora that I think. Um, the, the NIMSA organization was well aware of some of these secrets that we're talking about in South America with the lost civilization. And, and yes, I argue that they were opening up bases down there in the 19th century, early 20th century. As a matter of fact, I propose um, that Butch, Sun, Butch Sundance, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and their friend at a place – that that's the reason they went to South America. I lay all that out in uh, the Empire of the World, Two Friends from Sonora, and in the Origin book. I, I lay out, I show the connections between E.H. Harriman, the, the man whose railroad they robbed the most. I show that, you know, we're told that Harriman and Cassidy wanted to meet with each other, but we're told that um, uh, they just decided not to. But the funny thing is, after that time where they were supposed to meet, Suddenly, Butch and Sundance weren't going on the robberies anymore, and suddenly this hole-in-the-wall gang that could never be caught by, uh, you know, the posse's by law enforcement. Suddenly, they were being caught left and right, red-handed, and their other members were getting into shootouts with with the law and with the posse's. Something that, interestingly, Butch and Sundance themselves personally were never known to have done. Okay, that's interesting. And that gets into who and what I think Sundance actually was. Same with at a place. But, you know, this weird stuff starts happening to the hole in the wall gang. After this time, we're told that the meeting between Harriman and, Sun and Cassidy did not happen. And then shortly after that, Butch, Sundance, and Etta run off to South America. Oh, and by the way, they have a very easy time going through customs down there. And they have, you know, the money on them to establish a ranch, which, oh my gosh, happens to be not very many kilometers away from a place called San Carlos de Bariloche, which we now know has a long history with Nazi refugees, okay? And I go into all that in the book, the, the, the further interesting um, details. But yes, I propose that the reason Butch and Sundance went down to South America is because they became associated through E.H. Harriman. They made a deal with Harriman. And um, they went down there to establish a ranch that was actually an airship base for the NIMSA. And NIMSA was using that base as a base of operations to look for the sources of the gold in the Andes. Okay, for, for, and, and a variety of other things, but, you know, the source of the gold. And um, it's a very interesting scenario that I think has legs. And it shows you that there was a German presence starting with NIMSA in South America long before World War II. So that by the time we get to the World War II era, when, you know, certain 
Nazi officials have to run off, uh, NIMSA has already got them set up. You know, hey, come here. We're, mm -hmm. we're already well established in South America. And there you go. So that you know? ro that road was already paved long before yes. the, yeah. <laughs> long before the Nazis. Oh, know, absolutely. And I think the Nazi interest in Antarctica was a result of what NIMSA sources were feeding them, too. Which is leads us to a lot of strange questions about Antarctica, because I think the only the only upside of global warming is the melting ice and things are starting to become uncovered, as it were. We keep reading right. about strange things being found in the Antarctica, like the 17 mile long structure or something it's being uncovered under the ice yeah not anymore well it, well there's a couple different theories about that some people say that it's a, a leftover meteorite um, sure and then the other line of thinking is that it's some kind of a mothership or something that um crashed there or landed there um i don't do, do you have any thoughts on that walter have you, have you um, looked into that at all or? mothership I doubt the mothership story, yeah. Um, yeah. but I don't buy the meteor story. You don't buy that either. Yeah. Now, now, you know, uh, some close associates of mine, they're really into the meteor story and, oh, it brought a bacteria or, or, or maybe some embedded technology from Mars or something like mm -hmm. that. And that intrigues me. That might, you know, that's possible, I guess, and, and that would make the, the meteor, you know, something they would want to clamp secrecy down on. But, um, you know, I think it's something a little bit more than just a meteor, but I don't think we're talking about a mothership. What I think down there, um, and this is based on what I was told mm -hmm. by, you know, my, my mentor, my professional mentor in my Intel career, um, is that there was huge machinery found down there under the ice. There's a big hole, and when they explored that hole, there was huge and very old machinery from a lost civil, a past civilization, this forgotten technology, this lost technology of the forgotten civilization is how I like to put it. And that this was discovered, um, my understanding is sometime in the 50s, after World War II, and... Um, uh, uh, it's, you know, that's the big secret about what's down there, which is why I've been so intrigued in recent years. We hear the story about a hole. I heard, I learned this and I heard this in the, the mid to late 1990s, 96, 97, 97, 98. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, 20 years later, these last few years, we've been hearing stories about a big hole, about, you know, some type of, you know, device or machinery or such. And I thought, hmm, this is what I heard 20 years ago. So personally, I'm very intrigued with what's going on in Antarctica, what might really be going on down there and why. Um, I do pay attention to it. But um, yeah, I, I think what they've discovered is under the ice there, they've discovered some very strong evidence for this um, forgotten civilization. Which also brings me to many very mysterious, strange people going to Antarctica. Perfect example, yes. John Kerry. John right. Kerry made an issue of going to Antarctica because as, what was he? He was in the State Department. He, he was, was Secretary of State. Secretary of State. And he goes yeah. down there on election day. Right. Why? <laughs> yeah, why is that? Why would, why would the Secretary of State go to Antarctica on election day to, look, to observe what's going on with global warming? That does not make any sense. Yeah, because as others have stated, 
he could have learned everything he needed about the global warming, even secret stuff, sitting at his desk in D.C. Why did he go down there? You know, why did Kirill, the uh, patriarch of Orthodoxy, the Orthodox Church, why did he go down there? Um, it wasn't just to bless the chapel that's down there. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, there's. All these interesting, you know, and, and of course we know Buzz Aldrin went down yeah, there. Yeah, and, and he was, and something happened to Buzz Aldrin down there, and he was missing for, allegedly he got sick. I'm not mm -hmm. calling Buzz Aldrin a liar, but I am saying that it could be a cover story for yeah. why was Buzz, why did Buzz Aldrin disappear for essentially a week, and we all thought that he was sick in the hospital. Right. So there's a picture of him with the big thumbs up because he was like dehydrated or something. And of course, when you mm -hmm. talk about Buzz Aldrin, you talk about strange things being found on Antarctica. That leads me to the moon. And that's right. Oh, I'm sorry, Walt. Go ahead. Well, I, did, I just wanted to get a. Get I said a, that's right. I was agreeing with you. Yeah, it before, makes you wonder about the moon and Apollo 11 specifically. Well, that's yeah. That's another whole. <laughs> that's another a show. whole layer of thought. Um, but getting back to Antarctica before we leave that, I just I wanted to ask you what what do you think about the theories about the Nazi uh, there being a Nazi base in Antarctica and the and the whole thing with uh, Operation High Jump when Admiral Byrd went down there and apparently took an ass whooping and, and were right. so it's conjectured anyway and then came back with his tail between his legs. Um, what, what's your thinking on all of that um, line of thought? I, I don't. Guess? I don't think it was a Nazi base, a, uh, let's be specific, a Nazi Germany base as mm -hmm. we knew them during World War II. Right. I think if, if um, Byrd encountered what we hear, you know, about these stories, I think he encountered NIMSA, the, okay. the breakable mm -hmm. civilization. Um, I, I, I agree. Again, I refer to my friend Joseph Farrell. You know, he has pointed out, we've had long discussions about this, mm -hmm. the, the power infrastructure, you know, literal power, electrical or whatever, to support such a base as people think, um, just, you know, that's just not happening down there. Um, now, yeah, people could say, well, you know, if there's some some super secret gizmo, yeah, okay. Um, but the, the Nazis would not have had to have had such a Mondo submarine base down there if Nimza's already there. Um, now, we know they went there. I have no doubt that there were Nazi facilities there. But I'm, I'm just saying that I doubt that there was some massive um uh submarine uh nazi survivalist um what's the word i've heard you know some super bunker you know from which right. they could rule the world mm -hmm. I, I think if anything um that we think about the bird episode is true or accurate i, I think we're talking about nimza mm -hmm. that and, makes sense you know, yeah. yeah um bird and, and it might be it might be that the nazis found this hole and this forgotten civilization that, see, the Nazis, yeah, their explorers could very well have found this thing we're talking about in the hole. And that could be, remember, I said, my understanding was that, you know, we learned about this sometime after World War II. Well, think about it. If our paperclip guys, the Nazis, that we got told us about what the Nazis knew about Antarctica, then we would have learned about it after World War II. And then we would have started sticking our nose in it down there. So to me, it fits the timeline that... Um, the the Nazi explorers could very well have, you know, That's known exactly about what's what they must the have done. There. I think that what what really sort of gets back to the entire thing is that there was a civilization 
mm-hmm. that was very dominant here and that they went underground, how come they haven't taken control of the world on the surface again? Or are they uh, just biding their time? Um, it's, a, it, it's the, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I think they've been biding their time, but I have a little theory. I think um, their problem is that group I call the 1903. I think their um, opposing factions uh, have returned to the scene, so to speak. And let it be known, okay, you guys have been running roughshod long enough. Um, now they could have returned with some off-world help. and um, But whatever the case may be, I do think there is an, an equal, at minimum, an equal force that opposes them and keeps them at bay. And this is my answer to that question that um, they haven't taken over openly because they can't. What, what was the genesis of the 1903 group? Um, what, what, where did they develop from the, the, the NIMSA, you know, you, you laid that out pretty clearly. Um, yeah. The NIMSA does not originate with me, of course. This, oh, no, um, no. I, I learned about the NIMSA from, you know, the works of uh, Del Shao, right, the legendary right. Del Shao, yeah. and, and uh, Pete Navarro, who first, you know, wrote about him and found mm-hmm. the Del Shao books. And then the subsequent researchers like Dennis Crenshaw, Michael Busby, and Sean Castile, and and uh, uh, Tim Schultz, I think. Um, I apologize if I got that name wrong. And uh, a guy named Stephen Romano. These are all guys who... And, and Theo Pymans, these are all people that their research, you know, um, goes into this NIMSA organization. And then my contribution was to show that um, NIMSA, N-Y-M-Z-A, is an acronym. And for the longest time, people thought that it meant something to do with New York because in the airship milieu, mm-hmm. the airship mystery, they discussed these mysterious New York millionaires who invested in the airship mystery. So people assumed that the NY of NIMSA meant New York. But the problem is the, the original source of NIMSA was Charles Delshaw. He very specifically states that it was an organization founded in Germany and headquartered in Germany, and it was a German organization. And I provide um, in my books what I what what is really the the first attempt to um, translate what NIMSA means in German. And you know, there's some German speakers that yell and scream at me and want to beat me on the head. There's others that say, "Oh yeah, that's pretty good, spot on." But basically, I'm convinced I have the gist of what it means, and I and don't ask me to pronounce it because I, I can't. You know, oh, the book. I was just you about know, to. But 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 here's the thing. Um, uh, so you had you had this this NIMSA group, and they oversaw. More than one, but we, through Delshaw, we only learn about one of these smaller groups that was playing that were playing with anti-gravity technology and little flying um, contraptions, kind of like the Model T, you know, of of this whole airship mystery, the rudimentary proof of concept type of stuff. And one of these groups, um, the only one we know about through Delshaw, was the Sonora Aero Club, based in Sonora, California, mm-hmm. and they were operating in the 1850s, believe it or not, with uh, anti-gravity flying things. And by the 1860s, they had disbanded and disappeared. Well, 
Uh, Michael Busby is a researcher who's done some excellent research on the Sonora Aero Club and the 1890s airship mystery. And he points out an individual, Dr. Solomon Andrews, who had gone to Abraham Lincoln, contacted Abraham Lincoln during the war, and told him that he had, you know, this flying airship and he wanted to demonstrate it. And so Lincoln thought that was a good idea. And Solomon Andrews actually demonstrated his flying machine called the, what he called the Aeron, A-E-R-O-N. Um, for members of Lincoln's War Department and the press in D.C. And this was written about. I talk about it in my book. And uh, we are told that Edwin Stanton, the uh, Secretary of War, said, nah, we got to deal with this war. We're not interested in this, which doesn't make sense to me or any modern person, you know, because you think, well, this would have been a great advantage. Well, you know, but then on the other hand, we didn't see anything about the the Union using airships. Well, I argue that they indeed were focused on the war and they probably didn't know what to do with this. So I say that they definitely acquired the technology from Andrews and they sat on it until after the war. Because um, remember, we're, it's easy for us in the 21st century to look back and say, oh, they wouldn't have sat on that. They would have used it for bombers. And, and you got to understand, these were mid-19th century thinkers, okay? They didn't they weren't Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, they, the, the War Department guys. Not that they were idiots. They, they just, to them, war was cannons and men on the ground and horses, right? So after it, was, the war, it was outside their paradigm, I guess. Yes, exactly. But after the war, I think, I propose that uh, America's first black project, I refer to it as the Aaron Project, uh, was stood up. And over the next 25 to 30 years, they developed Solomon Andrews technology, and I argue that this American Black Project was um, the the source of the 1890s airship mystery. Now, the 1890s airships were more advanced than what the Sonora Aero Club was flying, and I, I provide a chart in my book Origin to show the progression of this technology. But I argue that the American airship builders on this Black Project were the ones responsible for the 1890s airship mystery of all these airships being seen across much of the United States. Now, part of the thing I, part of the evidence that is there to argue for this is something Michael Busby has fleshed out and points out um, in his work that there was an army officer named Samuel Tillman. You can look him up on, he's on Wikipedia. He's in the history of West Point and stuff. You can look him up. He was an explorer for the army, a surveyor. He was a chemist and a scientist and a, and a geographer for the army. And he allegedly, according to witnesses, was one of the crewmen of these mystery airships in the 1890s. Well, there we have a U.S. Army officer who was a known historical, he existed, and there he is tied to the airship mystery. Now, I know people like to say, oh, no, this was aliens, and, and that, that's utterly ridiculous, okay? There's nothing but a few um, very thin suppositions on the part, oh, maybe it's men from another world. No, no, no. Every, when you read the details, these were Earth men and these were Earth machines. And so there they were developing this stuff. And as we approach the 20th century, we get into the early years, and there is this legend, and uh, Castile and, and uh, Schultz write about it, um, that in 1903, Nikola Tesla was involved in helping to develop some airship technology, which um, an unidentified group attempted to leave the planet and fly to Mars. Mm -hmm. 
Now, it sounds like a wild story, but what's interesting is a couple decades later, Tesla, um, you know, then writes about receiving mysterious intelligence signals from space. What's very interesting is there's a researcher out there, a young guy who's going to be having a book come out soon. His name's Jonathan Battisti. And um, he suggested to me, what if those signals Tesla were receiving were actually from this airship crew that had disappeared, according to this legend, in 1903? And I thought, my gosh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's a cool so idea. I, I got yeah. The, I got the, yeah, I got the thinking. And, you know, according to the legend and the speculation involved with the legend, you know, that they were trying to get to Mars. And, and as I looked into it, I found Oliver Heaviside. Now, you can look him up, too. He was a guy, a self-trained physicist, so to speak. And he came up with uh, uh, Gravido Electromagnetics, GEM. And what's interesting was he came up with this in 1893, okay, uh, 10 years before the 1903. And when you look at his theory, theoretically, according to Heaviside's gem, you could not only power your ship, but you could encase it in a protective shell, which you know would allow you to leave the Earth's surface, go through the Van Allen belts, and maintain your life support systems within the shell powered by GEM. So you had at the time at least a theory existing that could support the technology to where some guys in 1903 combined with the the anti-gravity technology that I you know that. I argue and discuss and others argued was being developed. You combine that with the gem and my gosh, you might very well have had some guys who flew to Mars and made it. Now, I take that a huge wild ass guess way out on the speculation limb and I say, <laughs> what if these guys got there? What if this succeeded and they realized, my gosh, look what we have. And let's say they did not like the direction the 20th century was going. Because when you jump over to what was going on politically in the world, mm. economically, socially, um, you know, in the West, starting in the early 20th century, you could argue that, uh-oh, the totalitarians are on the march here, right? What if these guys in this group who did this in 1903, this is a what if, what if they said, we have... Okay, we know NIMS is out there. We can now match them, or maybe not quite match them. What if they said, screw it, we're going to break away? And they broke away. You know, this group of Americans working on this, you know, what was an American black project. What if they broke away and took their technology with them? And, you know, just went off and did their own thing. Um, that's who... I call the 1903. Now, people say, well, then wait a minute. If they had this in 1903, why in World War I did we have, you know, wood and fabric biplanes? You know, why in World War II did we have combustion engine airplanes and such? Um, you know, and I can't answer that sufficiently to everyone who asks it because the only thing I can come up with is <clears throat> for the same reasons that they got fed up and broke away, that would explain why they just didn't involve themselves, you know, at that time. But I say that it's very possible that they have decided to involve themselves now. And, um, you know, they're the ones who can keep NIMS at bay. Because when you think about it, when you look at NIMSA in terms of the Nazi international, look what has gone on since World War II. We've seen them, you know, very likely have, you know, been the, the original source behind the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I argue, too, that they were behind the uh, 1986 Challenger 
disaster. And also, I'm in the camp that thinks that they, uh, they're they responsible for 9-11. See, they've been running roughshod. They've been taking over our financial systems. They've been running everything. And I think it's in, in probably the last five years that the 19 – this is my guess now, speculation. I argue that in the last five years or less, the 1903 has let it be known to the NIMSA that they're back. Yeah. And we might be seeing a whole new game start here. We might even see a huge, huge conflict. What's interesting is that 1903 is when the Wright brothers were, were doing their thing, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah. which yeah, was completely completely primitive to, 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 what, to what these other people apparently were doing. Uh, and, 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 you know, this is what really troubles me is, is that all of this knowledge has been redacted from not only from American history, but from world history. World, yeah. and, and all the stuff that we're taught in school is just surface, you know, basically non non-important stuff or i mean it's not 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 that it's not important but it it just barely touches the surface of apparently what was going on well yeah um so how how does that happen i mean how do we not learn about this stuff you well, know, that, that's well what, i have an answer that aggra- really aggravates i me. do have an answer because um <clears throat> i was listening to neil degrasse tyson on another podcast and he was talking about how uh, children are taught to behave in a certain non-curious way Children, well, children into the educational system. Children are taught to conform to certain authority, and and don't be curious. Do not don't jump into puddles. Don't play with eggs to see you know what, you know how an egg is constructed. Kids are taught basically for their quote own good. Don't touch the hot stove, as it were. And the right. thing is, is that kids should be allowed to get dirty. Kids should be allowed to, you know, the peek inside every every box and every nook and cranny. Look, what's what's underneath the rocks and well, watch. They, they continue to do that with us as adults because look right. at the society right. we live mm-hmm. in. If somebody with a pedigree, if the Ph.D. says something is so, that's all you need to know. Just right. take his word for mm-hmm. it. Why? Because he's the specialist. Now, now. Guess what this is a product of? Let's go back an hour ago when we were talking about Burton and the Royal Society. Remember what I told you? The philosopher scientists were were bumped out mm-hmm. by the bean counters, the materialist scientists. This was the beginning. You can trace the beginning of the era of the exaltation of the specialist to specifically the change in the Royal Society in England because that changed the scientific community um, forever. Or, or since then, that that changed the scientific community. That was the beginning of the era of the specialist. And all you need to do is if a guy's a specialist, you just take his word for it and you don't do your own thinking. The problem with that is what grows up in that is what we call, you know, a priesthood. Mm-hmm. And that's all, you know, this materialist, Darwinist, atheist, scientist, you know, science community. This is nothing more than a priesthood. And, you know, they have their own little social structure and they have their dogmas. And um, but that's exactly it. They they have got us down to where there is a specialist for everything. Let me give you an example. You know, and it's gotten into all levels of our society. Now, when I was a kid, my dad had a company. It was kind of a jiffy lube on wheels. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, from the time I was 12 till I was 18, I worked, you know, Saturday, you know, for my dad in which, you know, we changed 
you know, oil and filter, did lubrication maintenance on fleets of everything from 18 wheelers on down to small cars. Okay. I grew up around trucks and, you know, I know how to change the oil in my car, of course, before the era where everything's a computer and a robot under the hood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But, um, you know, I had a buddy who he would never change his oil. And his thing was, you know, there's people you pay to do that. And I remember thinking, I'd rather know how to do it myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, than just rely on the other guy and be helpless when something happens under the hood. And that's just a, a microcosm, you know, a small example of how this this specialist, the exaltation of the specialist, has um, just totally taken over our society and culture. And here's the downside: what happens is it's bad for the specialist too, because all they know is that one thing, and in all other things, they're most likely mostly helpless also. So if they get us focused on being a specialist, there's nobody with a general sense of how things work. And there's nobody with a general outlook on history, right? And they don't know how to put the things together. And anybody who does look at it in that way and begins to see the big picture and wants to put the elements together, they get put down as soon as possible by ridicule or they're ignored you know, or worse. Um, and that's really, I think that's, that was the goal to begin that's, with. That, yeah, that's yeah. a good point. It, it really, um, it's really control. It's really about control. Yeah. It gives, it Absolutely. gives them and, you know, whoever they are in quotes, um, you know, more control because it, you have much more limited knowledge about general things. Well, I mean, look at the fight. That's, that, that's a really good point. Look at the fight that I had last week on Facebook about Bill Nye. And I took issue with something that Bill Nye had said about the theory of ancient aliens. And he was nasty about it. I mean, and and who is Bill Nye? Bill Nye is a guy with an engineering degree, a couple of honorary doctorates. Perpetuating the paradigm. Yeah, I, I would like to add that it's a bachelor's degree. It's not a Ph.D. So but the thing is, is that he so because he has a bachelor's degree in engineering and he had a a tv show for kids teaching them about science somehow he's an expert on artifacts that may or may not be on the moon and he says that the notion of there being strange things on the moon that we can't explain is preposterous well what i'm saying is that there are things on the moon that we can't explain i'm not saying i'm not saying they're alien i'm saying that for some reason nasa has airbrushed out these sections of the same the, the same areas on many different maps that they don't want us to see for whatever reason. Right. And right. the thing is, I'm curious who put that stuff there or what is it? Is it natural formations? It's re- and the notion is that it's ridiculous to even ask those questions. I right. think that's the most unscientific thing you can imagine. Well, there's right. also guys would, that are agents of disinformation too. You know, I think they're actually yeah, put in yeah. place to to diminish. Yeah the kind of things we're talking about today yeah you know, to make it look like it's just ridiculous things and to me it's not it's it's stuff that we're just not given privy you know inf- we're not privy to this information for for whatever reason i i, I it's a mystery to me but right it is what it is so but I, I'm, well, you know part of it is it's, it goes back to the control there's people in power that are scared to death for right. the masses mm-hmm. to know you know, what's really out there. Um, and I think it comes down to individual um, freedom of movement, individual freedom of thought. Remember, the collectivists, it's easier to control um, under a collectivist philosophy. I, I think that personally, I'm convinced that human advancement is dependent upon each of us as individuals 
advancing as individuals in thought, in understanding, and they don't want that. They they have they they constantly force this philosophy of you know uh, altruism to a fault, um, where you know you're you're just there's this big single consciousness and you're just part of it, as opposed to we're all every. Every one of us, the, the billions of us that are on this planet, from the highest to the lowest human being, is unique, specific individual. They don't want us realizing that. They don't want us developing that because it threatens their power in some way that we're not entirely clear. And the minute we become clear on exactly what it is that scares the hell out of them about us understanding our powers individually, the minute that becomes clear to us, they've lost. Then they know they not only can they not control the masses, but they can be easily neutered. They can be easily destroyed. And that's why they want to keep that particular thing um, out of our hands. And that's why they push the hive mentality, the Borg, the collective. And that's why, personally, I, I despise collectivism and, and its products, socialism, fascism, things like that. All the isms. Well, Those particular isms, yeah. It's kind of the same reason why they didn't want the slaves to learn how to read. <laughs> they want, they want to exactly, have them because if, because if they learn how to read, they you know they're like, hey, wait a minute, you yeah, know, right. what the hell's what's, going on here? Yeah, what's 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 with this? Wait, you know, there's why, this why am I not getting paid for what I'm doing? You know? <laughs> there's this con- there's this Constitution thing, this Bill of Rights thing. Have right. you checked it out? Well, and and it, it in some sense it's it's true. That's what that's what we're laboring under. You know, we're 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 only given X amount of information, and that's yeah. I find that um, troubling. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about. Um, sure. I noticed running through through a lot of your work is the fact that a lot of these groups, like like NIMSA, embrace the uh, the ideas of mysticism and the occult and the spiritual element. Even in some sense, the Nazis, who you you wouldn't imagine to be real spiritual, but but they did embrace those concepts, and and that seems to be something that ran through a lot of these uh, these guys that were involved with NIMS and stuff. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? That seems to be something, again, that the scientific community mm-hmm. has has pushed on, you know, pushed aside and said, oh, that's all just, you know, hoodoo, ho- hocus sure. pocus. Yeah, it, um, <clears throat> it, it, here's the way I look at it. There, there are these things on the metaphysical level. They are greatly like electricity. Electricity exists. You can use it for amazing things, and we do, Mm -hmm. or it can be very deadly if mishandled. And I think these paranormal forces, metaphysical forces, are just like electricity. And um, whatever the intention um, of the wielder is uh, will determine how they use that energy, that force, that knowledge. And... We're talking about NIMSA. NIMSA wants to control the masses and the people, so it's natural that their interest in these things would be along the lines of controlling others. And so in my research, it's my opinion, and not just my research, Theo Pimans uh, goes into this in his work on John Warrell Keeley, is that the spiritualists of the 19th century, who really were the forefathers of our modern New Age uh, culture, um, they uh, they were very much um, connected to the players that you know others have connected to NIMSA, 
And they also, um, you can trace the line historically and culturally, socially, um, to the uh, early 20th century um, uh, German paranormal culture that, you know, influenced, again, organizations like the Thule Society and um, the Nazi Party. Okay, so you definitely had, even though Hitler, you know, would persecute, you know, some, you know, witch people that fooled with witchcraft and astrology and stuff. Ironically, he had guys like Karl Mariah Willigat, you know, who these guys were total occultists. You know, Himmler was interested in this stuff. So in spite of Hitler's, you know, anything you could point to overtly that Hitler was against this stuff, he had his underlings that were deeply involved in it. So, and so yeah, I I say this was a uh, a Nimza and spiritualist influence. Yeah, it's just so long as they were involved in the supernatural that benefited him, he was <laughs> right. for like the spirit destiny. Yes. He was he was after the spirit destiny, and, and he actually sent groups out to to do yeah. um, you know to find occult objects. And, and, and if if he didn't do it himself, it was the Ananerbi under Heinrich Himmler. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, right. Uh, those guys, but right. yeah, absolutely. With, with his right. he with his blessing, no doubt. I don't yeah. think they did much without his blessing. But, oh, he uh, just wrote the checks. Yeah. He just kept writing the checks. Well, no, I checks. think he, he was interested in that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I think he, sure. he as long somehow... As, and you hit the nail on the head, as long as it served his... Yeah. His yeah, means, yeah, okay right, right, right. So, yeah, and, and you know, interestingly, we, we did a show about the uh, Templars um, a couple weeks ago, and, and I, I didn't realize, but FDR actually had a parallel uh, thread, and maybe you know about this a little, probably more than I do, um, that he actually sent a, a Russian mystic out looking for um, for objects. I, did did you ever do any run across any anything on that? Yes, I believe that was Nicholas Rorick. Yes, exactly. And he wrote some really interesting stuff. And he was involved with um, oh, the name was Wallace. I think the first name was Henry, who um, served yes. under FDR on his mm -hmm. cabinet. Was also, um, I believe, an author of um, uh, a New Agey type of. Of things, and I believe he's also the guy responsible for the uh, the pyramid with the all-seeing eye on our currency. Oh yes, he was the vice president, right under. Now yeah, under we're FDR. talking about yeah. Wallace, of yeah, course. Yeah. But Rorick was a a major influence, um, and uh, his stuff is real interesting. I recommend um, looking into that. Look into Nicholas Rorick, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, FDR apparently had another another whole side that we don't know much about. You know, or that we don't hear about anyway. You know, um, I, I mean, it, it it all just keeps rolling in one thing after another. That all, sure. all of these including things that we, his, including his connection to the Oak Island mystery. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, we, we, yeah. You know, we talked about that. He was looking for. He was apparently interested in the whatever's there, the treasure or, or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's connected to the Templars apparently as well. So you know, there's all these things that we we just don't know about, and they're starting to come to light now. Luckily, because yeah. of people like you who are, who are Put, you know, well, putting this stuff out there. For me, I, I just, well, I, I, I see myself as I, I take, you know, and, and um, try to put together more pieces of the puzzle. That's right, the way I right. look at it. Right. And, and, and it's, you, you do a really good job of bringing those things together and having it accessible and having it make yeah, sense. Yeah. You know, that yeah. It's, it's just not all of this jumble jumble of, facts and information it really it really all kind of funnels into the same line of thought and and that's well what, i appreciate that and i hope that's what i'm doing i, I hope yeah I'm to me yeah um, yeah you know. when i was watching the the buzzsaw with uh, which you were on the episode that you were on with uh, sean stone it occurred mm -hmm. to me that 
this this is probably this idea of breakaway civilizations might be one of the most critical pieces of of thinking now that's coming out in yeah. terms of um, it, it just answers so many unanswered questions for me anyway it, it, it really pulls a lot of those threads together like you said that um, just are kind of out there like you know hanging there and then and then this this idea of breakaway civilizations really it really, it, really make, it makes it, it coalesces it, 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 all it of make, that it stuff. makes more sense it than does, a lot yeah, of other yeah, theories yeah. that or it's one of those things where it's like you can plug this in and everything else seems to make a, make a lot more sense mm -hmm. that you know um but the thing is is like I'm I'm looking at the time and I think that one of the things that we I think what where we really want to leave the show for now Obviously, we want to have you on again when, after you publish the book that you're working on right now. Are you are you coming out with a new book in May, uh, Walter? I, I think I saw I, that. I'm on. hoping I'm hoping to get it done and out there on Kindle this month. Okay. But I really want to do it right, and uh -huh. um, and so it it might be bumped to June, but it's going to be I think well worth it. I think if you guys, especially if you like the Burton book and the stuff. Um, in origin and some of the other stuff, but especially if you like the Burton book, I think you're going to enjoy the Ambrose Bierce book because it's a doozy. Oh, is that what it is? Is that the topic? And Ambrose uh, Bierce? Well, Ambrose Bierce is the central figure in it, but I, I'm convinced that I can tie him to my Empire of the Wheel mystery. It's Empire ah, of the Wheel interesting. 4, Destination Carcosa. Oh, wow. But it, but it gets into Ambrose Bierce's disappearance, disappearance and what I think and um, yeah, I'm getting real close to having it done, and um, you know, hopefully, I can get it out there by the end of this month, and then the printed edition the month after. I, I believe he's the uh, he's the, he's the author that wrote um, Occurrence at Owl Creek, which yes. is which is one of the one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Mm -hmm. It was based on yeah, that. I, I believe that's the piece he's most famous for. Yeah, he's probably. credited as being the best. Of all the uh, the Civil War veterans who wrote about the war, uh -huh. I, he, he has long been considered the very best. Um, actually, no, for the longest time he wasn't considered the best, but then as time went on, um, he is now considered the best. Um, but here's an interesting thing, and I won't say too much about it. I get into it in the book. Right. He actually wrote just as much, if not more, about the strange and, and weird things like we're interested in, and that's an integral part of why I wrote my book and I and I will be getting into that and I'm real anxious to get this one out there because I think you guys and, and my other readers are really gonna like this one it's 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 great stuff but uh, I was hoping to have it done and have some copies with me when I'm at um, contact in the desert I'm gonna be hanging out with the the uh, paranoia magazine guys Olaf Phillips and them um, for that out in Yucca Valley but I, I just I don't want to um, Joshua Tree I don't want to rush the book so It'll be later this month or mm -hmm. early June. Yeah, make sure you get it right because that's you know that that's important. Oh yes. Um, so exactly. so he he's tied in with the uh, with the with the um, Sonora Aero Club or or not? Uh, with them specifically. I don't. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. With the airship. With the airship milieu, the airship mystery milieu. Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh yes. Yeah. I don't want. I don't want to take too much away from your new book. <laughs> yeah. 
It sounds great. It sounds very interesting. Um, Walt has the expression on his face right now is the same exact expression when a child sees gifts underneath a Christmas tree and he starts trying to peel away and just he says, a little you bit. You can't unwrap that one yet. <laughs> he's trying to he's trying to pull back the tape just a little bit to see what's inside the package. Well, I'll tell you what, you guys. Um, when when we're off here, send me a, a, a message and I am or whatever. With um, if I'll send you a copy of the book when it's ready. Oh, that'd Great. be awesome! Awesome. That's that's really and, really uh, nice. I I can send you a Kindle copy like more immediately, and then of course you know I can follow it up with a printed one. But uh, you know, you send me that, and I'll uh, I'll get that to you guys. I, I'm excited because I I would just like to be able to just show people, yeah. We talked to Walter Mosley. <laughs> wow. You're, Can, you're one of five people, including my mom and my dog. <laughs> oh, you're, you're much too humble, Walter. Um, <laughs> oh, can, you don't can you, know me very well. <laughs> can, can you tell our listeners um, how they can access your I, – I, I counted about 15 books on your you, – you, you have a website um, – yeah. And you actually have your own publishing company. So you, Yes, I, I started a publishing company in 2002. It's an adventure fiction pulp, adventure fiction publishing company. Um, an imprint of that is what I publish my nonfiction under. I have about the, the book I believe will be my seventh. Uh, wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, no. It'll be my uh, ninth. Excuse me. My ninth nonfiction book. The others are, are pulp fiction. But the easiest way to find my works and the links to my blogs is to go to my Amazon authors page. If you go to Amazon.com oh, yeah. uh -huh. and you put in my name, you'll find all my books there, nonfiction and fiction. Plus, in the bio, at the bottom of the bio, you'll see the link to empireofthewheel.blogspot.com, which is my nonfiction blog, and also the Lost Connet Library blogspot, which for those that if you're interested in the pulp fiction stuff, you know, that's a lot of fun, but um, I have both. But, yes, go to the Amazon.com author page, and you'll find it, all the links there and all the books. That's like that's that that's exciting. It's uh, oh, excuse me. Also, there are printed editions um, at Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Okay. That's that's terrific. Yeah. Now, are, are are you planning any more um, appearances on on any of the the uh, the neck the the cable network shows like are, are you well ancient aliens uh contacted me and want they want me to come back on and either um they're finishing up a season right now they might if they don't fit me in this season they might get me in next season um and they've kind of redone the episode i already did with them on warner von braun and added a couple of more comments that we had filmed a couple of years ago so that's running in the current season if you see the von braun episode um, and uh, the folks at Buzzsaw, I, you know, I think they're going to have me back on when you know it fits their schedule. Um, and uh, of course, I'll be out at Contact in the Desert, just more as a vendor. I'm not speaking out there, but I will be there for all three days if, if people are going there. And that's uh, the 19th, 20th, and 21st of May. That's next weekend. Mm -hmm. And um, other than that, you know, you can, you know. Uh, announcements uh, on my blog. I try to announce on my blog if anything else comes up. Okay. Do you ever do you ever come east? We're we're in New Hampshire, so we. we oh, are, hey, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, the Betty, I, Betty I, and Barney I, Hill, home, the home of Betty and Barney Hill. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, there you go. I've traveled through there. 
Um, I, I usually it's it's event um, like if there's an event going on, right, um, right. You know, there's somebody somebody's paying for my airplane ticket yeah, to yeah. drag me here and there. Yeah, yeah I will because I I'm just a poor writer. <laughs> right now, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're just poor podcast guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think we're, you know, we're all in the same boat these yeah, days. Yeah, well, the the whole thing is, you know, our whole mission in that, I know that sounds a little serious, but we, we want to get this information out to people. You know, we want people to be able to access non-mainstream media type of topics, you know, yeah. and, and that's what yeah. this is. And, and it, it opens up people's uh, channels for, you know, thinking about these kinds of things. And, and that's, that's what's so important about uh, the work that you're doing. Yeah, we take the topics and the subject matter very seriously, but we don't. We, we don't, don't take ourselves. No, we don't take ourselves <laughs> seriously. I, so we we have a good I time. Really, we, we we like to have a good time. I really, I sincerely appreciate your guys' interest. I really do. And and one thing I also like is that you know you 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 bring someone on here and you um, you know you talk about what they've done and and you, you don't bog it down with you know debating and bickering with you know naysayers and stuff and I, and i think what you just said your your objective was it's very important to have people on and and let them say their thing and let the listeners decide for themselves right. whether they think yep. there's something to it or they mm -hmm. think it's hogwash so i appreciate you guys yeah. having me on having this time to you know uh, talk about my stuff and that there's people out there interested in it well you you cannot imagine how thrilled we are i mean when when walt called me up and said that you were going to be a guest i, I my wife had to get the spatula and the broom to get me <laughs> off the ceiling oh get the defibrillator out <laughs> yeah no, but, but um, i have these guys <laughs> but um yeah, we, uh, we we can't thank you enough for, for being with us today, taking time out of... I, I know you've been busy working on your book and, and that kind of thing, so we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do that, and we're, and we're really looking forward to that to that book, and, and we'll, we, you know, if we can't get you back on again, we'll, we'll definitely bring that book more specifically well, well, forward. You guys, you, you get, here's what we'll do is, uh, when the book's done, let me get you a copy. When you're done reading it, just let me know when you want me back on, and we'll make it happen. Wow, that'd be great. Oh, That's and, great. And I also really want to that. I also want to extend the, the invitation. If anything ever happens in the news, <laughs> and and you want you you just want to spout off on it, just let us know, and I'll I'll fire up the PV mixing board and let you have at it. Oh, okay, cool. So I'll keep that in mind. All right. That sounds terrific. It does. Okay, Walter. Thanks again, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be in touch with you. Okay, thanks again. Thanks. Thank you. Al Landrin is pioneering a brand new frontier of fandom and collecting, set decoration reproductions. Landrin Artifacts is the premier location to purchase wall reliefs that are inspired from the Temple Cave carving seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. His work also includes pedestals and stands for prop replicas. Al Landrin has several prints of his phenomenal artwork that's reminiscent of early H.R. Geiger's designs and traditional gothic horror images. When you see these products for the first time, you'll realize it's something you've always wanted but can never express into words. Check out Landrin Artifacts, but be warned, after getting one, you'll have to have them all. Check out his webpage, LandrinArtifacts.com, or follow the link on our main page, TheFedoraChronicles.com. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. 
Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at Physics Laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes, and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them, yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on.